Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. One in nine Connecticut residents receive SNAP benefits to help them buy food. But under a proposal by the Trump administration, half of their cash benefits would be cut and replaced by a box of food mailed to them. Federal officials have called it America's harvest box. Is it a good idea? We'll find out. That's later. Also, the opioid epidemic across the nation has been front and center in recent years. On Monday, President Trump traveled to New Hampshire to talk about his ideas for dealing with the heroin and prescription drug problem. Meanwhile, what's being done to counter the number two drug killer in the U.S.? Cocaine overdoses continue to kill African-Americans at a higher rate than heroin. We'll hear from a researcher from Stanford University who says the nation needs to focus on, quote, more than one drug at a time. But first, workers at private group homes are threatening to strike in early April if they don't receive a raise. They haven't received one in 12 years. The Hartford Current's Josh Kovner has been reporting this story. He joins us now in studio. Josh, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. So give us an idea um, of when we talk about private group home workers, who they are, who they are and how, where are they working? How many of these group homes are we talking about? Well, dozens across the state. Uh, I think about 2,500 would strike if they do, uh, Jen Schneider of the union said. Uh, people like you and me, uh, mothers, fathers, uh, they get about 14, 15 dollars an hour. Many are working two, sometimes three jobs. Many are on Husky. There's a high uh, turnover rate uh, because of the wages. The the stable, the stability has, has been out of the grasp of, uh, of the system, and it's underfunded by the state in a relative sense. So they're taking care of uh, Connecticut residents who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. Ninety percent of the client's run through private care. And you were talking about high worker turnover uh, because it's, you know, it's a hard job and they're not getting paid very much. Very, very hard. Uh, you know, you got to get down and close bodily functions. Um, people who are, uh, have varying levels of need. If you talk to the advocates, they'll say that not everyone is evaluated quite precisely enough. Some in group homes could live more independently. I think there's a push to evaluate people to a more precise level so that they can get the least restrictive environment. Uh, Why is this coming to a head now? If they haven't received a a raise in 12 years, why why is the union talking about striking? Well, the union does advocate for them. but they also advocate for their other group of workers, which are the state workers, and it's a little bit of the haves and the have-nots. Uh, the union does a good job with uh, solidifying the state employment. Uh, there's a lot of overtime available. Now, the union isn't a champion of the overtime. They'll tell you, instead of one worker making 250000 we'd like six workers making the fifty and 60000 base salaries that we fought for. But, in fact, 
the uh, state workers do have a lot of access to uh, extra work and, and better wages. You've done some reporting on that, uh, looking specifically at some of the state-run uh, group homes that still exist that were not privatized, and of course, Southbury Training Center, where you see uh, millions of dollars in overtime being paid to these workers. But to your point, uh, there aren't that many workers there because is it the client base is, is trickling down as, to, as well? In the heyday, in the days when even well-meaning healthcare professionals said, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, you should put your child into an institution. There was 2,000 people at Southbury. That thinking has changed. There's about 200 left at Southbury, about the level that was there when they closed Mansfield years ago. So we're getting to that tipping point. There's still 600-plus uh, state workers, um, but they've shaved and reduced. There used to be, you know, 30 chefs at Southbury, but, you know, mm-hmm. there are fewer now. So there's actually a Senate bill being raised this session that could increase funding to the operators that the state de- Department of de- Developmental Services contracts out to at these private group homes. If they get a little more funding, that could then in turn go to to boost the worker pay, or how would that work? The, rewar- they, the bill would reward innovation on the part of the private group homes. In Meriden, they, the Meriden Arc closed a group home with the buy-in from the families and put the clients in less expensive apartments with support and some technological aids. And, uh, but under the current budget scheme, they don't, even the state departments don't get to keep what they save. If they save in one line item, that doesn't mean they're going to be able to use it in another. And that might go to the Malloy administration, and maybe the next governor might take a look at letting human service departments keep what they save, keep what they generate through an innovation. We hear so often, Josh, with the, the continuing state budget crisis, there's only a couple places left to cut, and it's social services and higher education. I'm not sure why they pick on human services. Uh, It's an investment. A lot of the programs uh, foster independence. If you keep people home and the union work with the in-home workers, they just got a contract, uh, those workers help keep people out of expensive nursing homes. So I see it as an economic investment. This is where we live. In studio with me is Hartford Current's Josh Kovner. He's been reporting on uh, this story where hundreds of workers at private group homes, uh, these are workers that take care of individuals with intellectual and, and developmental disabilities. Uh, these workers um, are paid uh, through uh, operators who contract with the Connecticut Department of Developmental Services. And these workers could strike in early April unless they receive a raise. It could be their first pay boost in more than 12 years. Meanwhile, as we discussed, there are uh, state employees at Southbury Training School and other state-run homes that make more money than these workers at the private, uh, privately-run group homes. We're talking millions of dollars that the state has spent in overtime pay uh, at, with this population. So for more on this, uh, we're joined now by David Pickus. He's president of SEIU 1199, which represents 26,000 healthcare workers in Connecticut. Uh, David, welcome to the show. 
Hi. Pleasure to be here. So uh, obviously this is a, a complicated issue. So tell us about these um, these workers that you represent. On one hand, you have the, the state uh, employees uh, at these state-run group homes, the ones that are still run by the state. And then you have this private workforce, and the compensation is different. Yeah, well, as a, uh, as a health care union, we represent the people that do the work, and we advocate for the people that do the work. Um, and as uh, Mr. Kovner said, our goal, of course, is to have people in the least restrictive environments that they can work in. We don't view any contradiction about representing people in the state and representing people in the private sector. While some people want to try to make a, uh, um, it out as it's a fight between those workers, these are people who are paid by the state. These are not folks with a lot of power. These are folks trying to do a job, and quite frankly, um, people have been trying to pit one group against another. Some people want to say that the state workers get paid too much. They have a middle-class existence. They get together, they negotiate with all the other state workers. In the private sector, we have been trying and trying and trying to get the state to fund the situations. And sadly, the legislature seems to operate as if the only way it will respond to anything is if there's a big problem that as long as people are willing to go along and get along, um, um, that the pressures on them are not to fund these services. And these services have been inadequately funded for a very, very long time. People, the, the, actually the owners uh, of these places, the nonprofits, um, and it's 100% state funding. Um, they have been advocating for more money. Others have been advocating for more money, um, but the state hasn't delivered on it. And social services cost a lot of money. It takes money to take care of people. And up to now, what it's been done is is that the argument that the private sector is cheaper is fundamentally because the wages are so much less. Um, and the reason the wages are so much less is because they don't fund it. So the fact that we have to come out and, and be screaming from the highest rafters about the fact that this is an untenable set of circumstances and people can't continue to live under it and they will strike if necessary um, is a real sad commentary. But quite frankly, um, that's the only thing that we can do. And individuals can't do it themselves that's the reason why unions exist but there is absolutely no conflict between us representing the private sector or representing the public sector I wanted to also bring in the conversation Barry Simon, president and CEO of Oak Hill. Uh, this is Connecticut's largest private provider of services to people with disabilities. Uh, Barry, welcome to the show. So hi, Lucy. Thank you. I should also mention Oak Hill is an underwriter for Connecticut Public Radio. But Barry, I wanted to get your perspective. So you're employing these workers that we're talking about who may be striking in early in early April. What have you observed from them in regards to the low pay that they've been receiving for so long? Yeah, you know, it's it's highly concerning. And, you know, as Josh uh, pointed out, the, you know, the underfunding by the state has gone on since 2007. Um, there's been no increases and only decreases to our rates. So the, the fact that our employees are, um, you know, have become agitated around um, being treated that way, you know, is frankly not a surprise. And it, it's highly concerning. I mean, I am very uh, anxious about how this is going to, you know, play out for the people we serve. And, um, but, you know, as, as, um, I think Dave pointed out, you know, it's a strike if necessary. And unfortunately the legislature, um, you know, has behaved over these years in a way that it, you know, becomes necessary to get their attention. Um, uh, you know, it's a really sad state when you have, you know, employees who are so dedicated 
to, you know, providing care to the individuals who live in our group homes. And, you know, we have close, you know, 75 group homes uh, at Oak Hill, uh, you know, and other services as well. Um, you know, I have almost a thousand employees that are in the union. Um, you know, it's a hard, hard place to be uh, with the prospect of, of a strike happening. Um, and the fact that the legislature has just avoided this issue for years. You know, I, I am shocked that they certainly, you know, talk uh, loud and proud about, um, you know, wanting to, um, you know, have a, a budget of fairness, equal pay, justice. Um, you know, many are talking about, you know, women's issues and, and um, providing, you know, adequate livable wages. And yet the state has not moved our salary since minimum wage was seven sixty five an hour. That's the last time that we got any kind of rate increases. And those rate increases go directly to the workers. Um, you know, I've been at this for 25 years. And in 25 years, there has never been a year that if we don't get a, you know, when we get a rate increase, it goes directly to the workers for exactly whatever that rate increase is. I wanted to bring in a listener call now. Laura's calling for, from Columbia. Laura, we have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Um, yes, I am a, a union member. I've worked for Sunrise for 16-plus years. I have not seen a raise, I can't even remember when, uh, 12 years ago since then, uh, 60 cents more an hour I, I have uh, made in 12 years. Uh, I can't afford health care or... Um, our health care is so unaffordable, it costs more than what we make. So uh, I can't provide health care for myself. I haven't had health care in three years uh, or for my family. Yeah, our wages are, are uh, that we need funding. We need funding and we need to um, get the support we need from the state. Um, we were hearing from uh, Josh Kobner's reporting that some of these workers at these private group homes are making $14 an hour. What would be uh, an adequate boost, Laura, for, for you and other workers uh, to uh, be able to afford uh, what you're talking about? Uh, we have, we have uh, other private sectors that make less than $14 an hour. We can support their family. I'm a single, single parent. Um, I support my family solely. Um, I can't even afford uh, basic needs. I have to get state insurance for my daughter. Um, she had uh, suffered a stroke. I can't even afford to heat my own home. I have to go to state programs and get funding uh, to heat my house in the winter. So, the, you know, the cost of living has gone up tremendously. And um, here we are still making uh, wages that, you know, we can't afford food. Laura, thank you. decide what bills mm -hmm. to pay. Thank you for your call. I wanted to go back to David Pickus, president of SEIU 1199. Again, this is the healthcare uh, workers union that represents 26,000 uh, workers in Connecticut. So um, where does this stand now? We heard about this bill before uh, uh, the legislature, David. If that were to pass, does, is that enough to avert a strike? Um, Assuming the legislature uh, passes a bill, we have to negotiate contracts with the employers. Um, they're the ones that uh, that negotiate the contracts with us. Um, I'm making an assumption that if the state passes the bill, that we could probably reach agreements with the employers. But that's what we have to do to avert a strike. And in 2016, I wanted to ask you, David, there was that push by the Malloy administration to privatize uh, more than, I think it was about 30 state-run group homes, um, and that, I think, stopped, that was halted. Um, are you worried that that's going to come up again, um, again, because this budget crisis is, is not going away anytime soon? 
Well, we're always extremely concerned about uh, about the uh, the continual privatization. There are people in the state system, okay, that have much higher levels of need and or are used to the people that have been taking care of them. And and the argument, therefore, to just privatize because we can save money on wages, because we can continue to pay people in the private sector cheaper, is really an inappropriate argument. Um, we want people in the best circumstances that they can live in, that they want to live in. Um, we think that the way to do that um, is to fund the services, and then people can make the decisions and determinations that they need to make. And so then we don't run into the question of people making overtime because there's a hiring freeze, okay? Or we say that the wages are too much because what we finally decided to do is to decrease the overtime I'm talking about in the state facilities. And in the private facilities, um, as the caller said when she called in, there are many facilities, okay, that are making 11 and $12 an hour. Mm-hmm. So the state is paying for the... Um, um, uh, for social needs for the people who are doing the work in ways that if they paid them a decent wage, maybe they wouldn't need all of all of the other state services. Also, the consumers of these services um, would be in much better shape in the sense of having less turnover and an ability to rely on folks that, that, that can make a living at their jobs. I want to go back to Josh Kobner from the Harper Current who's been reporting on this issue. Josh? Well, David is the type of person that I would want in, in my foxhole. These, these union officials are knowledgeable and, and, and bold when it comes to fighting. But it is debatable that the level of need uh, between the clients that are served by the state and the clients that are served by the private is that much higher in the state system. When Malloy visits Southbury, uh, they take him to the place in Southbury where the sickest, most medically challenged people are. But if you talk to Shannon Giacovino and Leslie Samoes and Wynn Evarts of ARC, they'll tell you, and I've seen Sue Bastian and other mothers taking care of their sons and daughters at home with G-tubes and J-tubes and laid out on beds and IVs dripping life-saving nutrients into their bodies. And uh, this stuff does take place in the private sector as well. And meanwhile, as there's a lot of debate about uh, where to cut costs and, uh, and to give these uh, workers um, a, you know, a wage that can help them with their daily lives, their daily uh, responsibilities, there are 2,000 people on a waiting list to even get care. Josh. And that's why advocates point to the disproportionate amount of funding in the budget that goes to the smaller state employee group rather than the larger private, uh, private sector. Uh, we're almost, if I may, go ahead, if I may on that, the, the, the problem and, and the argument is it's a, it's a false equivalency. The people on the waiting list need services. There has to be funding for those services. I don't know of any situation in the state of Connecticut um, that, that I've ever heard of where if you cut the costs in one place, that you keep it in the budget or you move it to other people. That would cause two problems. The legislature then has to decide to do that when they're the ones who are charged with making determinations. And you would then be saying that the budget is fixed at that rate and can only go down. And neither of those are appropriate solutions. The funding has to be there for the people on the waiting list. The idea that we cannot afford it is irresponsible, and it's, and it's a red herring. 
And I think that we have to start to take a look at that as opposed to saying that, well, if we just move the funding from here to there, everything would be fine. We don't do that, and everything wouldn't be fine. We have to increase the funding. I want to uh, let uh, Barry Simon weigh in before we head to break again, president and CEO of Oak Hill. Again, this is the largest private provider of services to people with disabilities. Uh, Barry, if the strike happens in April, who's going to do the work at your 75 group homes? So the the scary thing is, you know, we have to contract with uh, temp agencies in order to, you know, get uh, people in the cover. And it's a you know situation I think everybody wants to avoid, because if we can use the resources for the employees who the participants know, um, that would be the, the best thing. But, but uh, you know, as is, you know, was pointed out, uh, you know, the inadequacy of the funding uh, is the issue. The, the newest, um, you know, I'll say privatization um, RFPs that have come out from the state have come out with, you know, $11, $12 an hour is what they're paying uh, for the direct care support workers. So you can't uh, keep you know, the, the state wants the services, but they control, um, you know, what the contracted rate is for pay. So while they're, you know, certainly love to point the finger at, the, you know, Amazon, Walmart or um, uh, McDonald's for not paying properly, you know, they need to look long and hard in the mirror about what they're paying uh, for the services uh, as well. Barry, we'll have to leave it there. Barry Simon, president and CEO of Oak Hill, also an underwriter for Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Also, David Pickus, president of SEIU 1199. We may be talking about this in the near future, David. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And also to Josh Kovner. As always, thank you so much for your reporting and for coming in to talk about this very important issue from the Hartford Current. Anytime. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. Coming up, opioid overdose deaths from heroin and painkillers continue to plague the nation. They, they aren't the only drugs killing Americans. We'll talk to a Stanford researcher on the number two drug killer. And you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Drug-related deaths have grown across all races and genders in the U.S. for more than a decade. That's according to a recent study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It also found deaths of both men and women from heroin exceeded that of opioid painkillers. But among black men and women, overdoses from cocaine top heroin deaths. Does this surprise you in 2018? Do you think the heroin and opioid overdose epidemic has complicated how we talk about the drug problem in the U.S.? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The New York Times reports cocaine use is increasing. It's the number two drug killer in the U.S. For more on this, we're joined by Dr. Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University. Dr. Humphreys, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, we were talking about all the attention and emphasis placed on the opioid epidemic here on the many lives lost in recent years. Um, you had um, you, you have spoken out, especially in the New York Times, about this latest study on the Annals of Internal Medicine about um, this attention. We might be losing sight of other drug problems in the U.S., specifically what's going on with cocaine use and overdoses in the country. What can you tell us? Well, we have a tendency to look at just one drug at a time. It seems to be the limits of our uh, attention. But uh, we often have multiple drug problems, and that's certainly the case now 
in the U.S., particularly in New England and the southwest United States, there's still an extensive uh, group of people using cocaine and suffering from cocaine. And as you mentioned in your setup, particularly in black Americans, uh, their death rate from cocaine overdose is actually higher than their death rate from heroin overdose. So we need to you know, be working on multiple fronts and not just focus on opioids. Uh, there was a study by Rand that found that cocaine consumption fell 50% between 2006 and 2010, but that's changed. Why? Probably it's changed due to changes in Colombia, which is one of the lead suppliers of, of cocaine. Uh, cocaine comes from the coca plant. Colombia has is now in the process of attaining peace, which is hugely important and wonderful, you know, in terms of getting groups like the FARC to lay down their weapons. As part of that, though, they can't really do a lot of pressure on uh, coca production because that might alienate groups they're trying to bring into the political process. They also announced a payment program that if you were growing coca, they would pay you money to switch to other crops. But because it was announced in advance, most analysts think what happened is another, a number of farmers started planting the coca in the hopes of getting the money to stop growing coca later. And so this uh, supply is uh, decreasing prices. That's exactly right. Yeah, drugs function like any other market. Um, you know, when something is scarce, it's more expensive, and when it's more available, the price tends to drop. When we're talking about cocaine use increasing, overdose from cocaine, overdose deaths from cocaine increasing among the African American population, both men and women, is this across the country? Or are there pockets where this is a real issue? Uh, the it certainly happens all over the country, but the the two regions of the country that seem to have the highest cocaine use are uh, where you are, basically from New York up through Maine. And then there's another uh, a large cluster from Southern California running through uh, Arizona and New Mexico. Um, but you certainly see people addicted to cocaine uh, all over the country, but those are the two hot spots. For Perspective from Connecticut, we're joined on the phone now by Dr. Charles D.K., Medical Director for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, known as DEMAS. Dr. D.K., welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me. So again, we hear so often about the opioid uh, and heroin uh, epidemic in this country, Dr. D.K. What are we seeing here in Connecticut with, uh, is there a noticeable increase in cocaine use and overdoses here locally? Yes, uh, the data we have shows a, a gradual increase in the use of cocaine in Connecticut. If you look at the raw numbers from 2013 to 2017, so in 2013 we had about 9,952 individuals who received services from DMAS whose primary presentation was cocaine problems. And, and in 2017, that number has gone up to 10,395. So an excess of about 400-plus individuals between the four-year period. But putting this in context, though, in Connecticut, if you look at individuals who come for services at substance abuse programs in Connecticut, about 53% of those individuals report uh, uh, heroin and opioids as their primary drug, followed immediately by alcohol, which counts for close to 30% of those individuals, then marijuana before cocaine. And for those individuals who are arriving to mental health programs for services, alcohol accounts for the majority of the individuals who report uh, problems with substances. 
So about half of the individuals will report alcohol as their primary drug, followed by marijuana, then heroin and opiates before cocaine. So yes, the numbers are, are creeping up, but in Connecticut, we still have these other substances as the primary uh, substances of note. Now, you're talking about uh, many different substances that um, people are becoming addicted to and need treatment, but it, it, it goes along with uh, uh, what Dr. Keith Humphreys was saying is, in the United States, our, our drug problem is complicated, and we shouldn't just be focusing on one or another, but on a wide variety of, of these issues. I mean, what's your take, Dr. DK? Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think they all, most people use more than one drug. And so to focus on only one, we'll be missing out the opportunity to address all the other drugs. And that certainly is the case here also in Connecticut. Uh, We just heard that President Trump was in Manchester, New Hampshire yesterday, uh, stressing um, that this epidemic opioid to opioids and heroin um, needs to be stopped. uh, But he was focusing more on uh, uh, penalizing uh, the drug dealers. What do you want to hear from the Trump administration in terms of our drug problem in the U.S.? I'll start with you, Dr. D.K. Well, I would not presume to uh, have the authority to advise the uh, president about what uh, would be the direction of the government, but in, why not? In, you work for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. You're, you're, you see these clients. Well, I'll tell you what we think we should be doing, and and what we are doing is trying to find ways to manage what we consider a significant uh, addiction problem, and that that means going through the areas of prevention, providing adequate information to individuals about. The, the fact that treatment is available, it means providing services at emergency rooms through having peer support groups who would you know, meet you there and try and help you, point you in the direction of treatment. It means increasing access, either through making it easy for you to contact individuals when you are in need, for you to be able to, tra- to be transported to where you can receive treatment when you're in need, or in fact, to have the availability of services when you get to the areas where people People are. It also means providing services to where you are. So I think the, the, the piece of trying to manage the individuals who have a problem is, in my view, different from trying to uh, manage the legal aspects of how the, the drugs come into the state in the first place. So we are focused on the individuals who now we have seen as having difficulty managing the problems that arise from using substances, which is our mandate as as clinicians. But uh, in terms of the legal uh, approaches to how to prevent the drugs from coming in, I I, I I don't think I have that to be my mandate. Uh, Dr. Keith Humphrey is professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University. Um, in terms of access to services, we hear from a lot of municipalities, a lot of governments, where they need more resources to combat uh, the drug problem, whether it's opioids, heroin, cocaine. Uh, what are some of the issues on the national level, including uh, you know, repealing the individual mandate that's impacting uh, those uh, services that we heard Dr. DK talking about? current uh, reality is that it's a lot easier to get your substance of choice than it is to get treatment. And as long as we're in that situation, we're going to have a hard time uh, helping people who are addicted. But there's a number of things we can do. One is to uh, make sure that uh, all states expand Medicaid. Medicaid, the Medicaid expansion mandates that there's a benefit for substance use disorder treatment. Certainly keeping the individual mandate would be a positive thing so people have health insurance. 
and keeping the state health exchanges stabilized, and there's been some effort to destabilize them financially, but what a lot of people may not realize is every single policy sold on health, ex- sold on health exchanges has to have coverage for substance use disorder treatment. So when people buy those policies, they get that coverage. So that's the direction we need to go, and uh, you know, I do everything I can to try to persuade people in politics to, to follow along that route. Um, there's also a debate uh, when we're talking about uh, drugs in this country again, where um, a lot of the uh, people that are impacted, while we know that opioid and heroin use has increased over all genders, all races, uh, many of the overdose deaths are white individuals, white Americans. When we talk specifically about the, the cocaine use and overdoses increasing, it's the African-American population that's seeing that impact. Uh, so how do we reconcile that and 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 work better with focusing on a drug, the drug problem that impacts all these populations? Well, the thing about uh, it is absolutely true that the you know, cocaine deaths are higher than heroin deaths among black Americans, but opioid deaths altogether are, are very high among black Americans, mm-hmm. as high as they are for cocaine. So you know, this is a chance for all of us to work together, which has often not been the case in drug policy. Oftentimes, drug policy has included a lot of prejudice and race baiting and things like that, but uh, we're all suffering and we should all work together and everybody is entitled to good care no matter what the race is. We should work towards that kind of society. Um, can we learn a little bit more, uh, Dr. Humphreys, uh, with someone who is struggling with addiction to cocaine, uh, what are the available treatments? Again, it's unlike uh, opioid or heroin uh, uh, addiction where there are medication, medicaid-assisted treatment, um, and even if someone were to overdose, they have Narcan versus if you're on cocaine, what are the, what are the alternate uh, ways to help them? Well, you're correct that we do not have a medication for cocaine, despite, you know, billions of dollars have been spent trying to find one. It's just a very hard puzzle to crack. But there are a number of good psychological, uh, psychosocial treatments. So there's a style of treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy that helps people learn new skills, uh, identify triggers for use, uh, get better at managing stress. There's people who do well in uh, mutual help organizations like Cocaine Anonymous. There's people who do well in... uh, residential care, like therapeutic communities, where they sort of learn new ways of acting and being and uh, keep away from uh, the substance of choice so they can stabilize physically and then transition to some sort of supportive outpatient care. You know, the, the best news I can give is that there are 25 million Americans in this country who are in recovery from addiction. So uh, even as bad as it may get, anyone who's listening who's in that situation should know that, that there's always hope. Millions of people get out of the situation, and you can too. Uh, you mentioned uh, the billions of dollars spent to try to find uh, treatment options uh, over the years. What's happen- happening specifically in the research community today related to uh, cocaine use? Um, on the medication side, very little uh, because, uh, you know, the, the federal government is a teeny player in pharmaceutical development. It's really the industries that decide. And because of all the failures to develop a, a drug that would treat the stimulants, meaning cocaine and also methamphetamine, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is, is largely pulled out of that area, and you know the federal government doesn't have the, the resources to do a lot. So we don't have a lot of, I, I can't say anything particularly optimistic on that front, but there's still people developing psychosocial treatments. Um, there's certainly efforts to fund treatment better. That was one of the key goals of the Affordable Care Act. So at least some good things are happening. I want to go back to Dr. Charles D.K., Medical Director for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Dr. D.K., did you want to weigh in on uh, the kind of research needed today to help uh, people struggling with substance abuse? 
Well, I just let me first state that I'm a forensic psychiatrist. I'm not a, an addiction psychiatrist, but I've worked in this field for a long time. And I think that the ability to develop pharmacological interventions would be absolutely crucial in, in this fight. Uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has been very helpful for some individuals. Uh, contingency management, which basically means using uh, reward uh, and even reward and punishment for individuals who uh, come to clinic with, a, with a, either positive or negative urine to enhance their compliance with treatment has also been shown to be very helpful for a group of people. But what is lacking is the addition of biology. So it's biological, psychological, social, and spiritual are the global ways of looking at interventions. We have some psychological and we have some social. We uh, obviously they're spiritual, but we don't have this very crucial arm of biology. And, as, and so I think that efforts to develop um, interventions that might address the biological problems will go a long way to manage the problem. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just wanted to bring in a listener call to this conversation about uh, drugs in America. Matt's calling from West Hartford. Matt, go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yes, I'm just uh, calling to say, as the brother uh, of a heroin addict, um, my, my brother and his ex are both heroin addicts. have been for a decade. Uh, we're raising his kids um, because the problem is so bad. I really think we need to end the prohibition on drugs. It has not worked. The war on drugs has failed. It's an abysmal waste of money. I think we should legalize, we should regulate, and we should treat addiction like any other medical condition. Well, Matt, thank you for your your call and comment. I wanted to get Dr. Humphrey's uh, take on that. Uh, Matt's saying that uh, all drugs should be legalized. Oh, I agree absolutely we should treat addiction as a medical problem. Um, but I wouldn't say, particularly it's interesting since the, this show is in Connecticut, that legalizing opioids and having companies sell them solve the problem because that's what Purdue Pharma did, and that's how we got this epidemic. So we, we don't do a good job of regulating legal corporations that sell drugs in this country, so we would still have a drug problem if Purdue Pharma was allowed to sell cocaine and heroin in addition to OxyContin. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I, I guess what are some uh, lasting uh, thoughts here for our listeners, Dr. Humphreys? Uh, uh, again, uh, we uh, found you through this New York Times op-ed about, again, uh, opioids and heroin are not the only uh, drug issues uh, facing Americans, um, and we were focusing specifically on cocaine use uh, uh, rising. Uh, but what should be some takeaways uh, for how listeners should be talking with their legislators? Well, I mean, the, the message, I think, should be that addiction is a health problem, and we want to have health of people like Dr. Decay uh, leading uh, that response. You cannot, you know, jail your, uh, you know, jailing people for addiction does not solve addiction. It often makes it worse. Sending them to prison does not solve an addiction. It often makes it worse. So we need to have that uh, response to people who are addicted. We need to tightly regulate companies, which we don't do. That How we got here was through legal companies selling opioids far too freely, and that needs to change. And then we also need to think about prevention, because the best solution would be if people didn't get addicted in the first place, and that means making investments in kids, some of which will be specific to drugs and alcohol, but a lot won't. Uh, it's probably true that if we could just have you know, better schools, safer neighborhoods, richer lives for kids uh, with alternatives to substance use, fewer of them would seek out those rewards, uh, that come, the short-term rewards and the long-term pain that comes from substances.
I want to thank Dr. Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University. Uh, Dr. Humphreys, thank you for your time. Thank you. Also, Dr. Charles D.K., medical director for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. We appreciate your perspective, Dr. D.K. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, SNAP, commonly known as the food stamp program, could be replaced by a food box. We'll find out more about this budget proposal from the Trump administration. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, the CDC estimates roughly 1 in 700 babies is born with Down syndrome each year in the U.S. On the next Where We Live, we'll look at the ways in which medical advances have changed the way doctors screen for Down syndrome during pregnancy. That's coming up Thursday. Now, 11% of Connecticut residents receive SNAP benefits to help them buy food, but under a proposal by the Trump administration, half of those benefits would be cut and replaced by a box of food mailed to families each month. Federal officials have called it, quote, America's harvest box. Is this a good idea? We wanted to find out more about this proposal and how SNAP impacts Connecticut residents. Joining me in studio now is Shannon Yearwood, Executive Director of End Hunger Connecticut. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what's your take on this uh, proposal? Again, it would be cutting the SNAP benefits in half, uh, obviously saving billions of dollars, according to the, the budget proposal. But the uh, the replacement would be a box mailed to families? Yeah. So this is not a good idea. I just want to put that on the record here. Uh, it actually would end up costing quite a bit more money to do this, just the logistics of actually trying to get a box out to families. And not all families that receive SNAP benefits have a place you can mail a box to, much less assure that once you get home from work, that box will actually be there waiting for you. Um, not to mention the stigmatizing factor of having a box called America's Harvest Box sitting outside of your door. In addition to this, there's no way to provide fresh fruits, vegetables, healthy food with this. We're talking about shelf-stable food, taking that choice away from families. The average SNAP benefit per meal per day right now is $1.86 nationally. Mm -hmm. In Connecticut, that's about 25% to 50% less than what you actually need in order to buy a meal based on the low-cost thrifty food plan, which is what USDA recommends to provide a nutritious, balanced meal for your family. So we were talking about this idea of sending food. You mentioned shelf-stable food, so processed food, where families would no longer have uh, the um, ability to choose the food they're eating. Instead, they'd be mailed a box of food that does not include fresh vegetables, fresh fruit. And uh, again, this is a way, according to the Trump administration, to save money, um, also to address some what they say are flaws in SNAP's program. So let's talk a little bit about SNAP. Now, for everyone, not everyone knows what this program is. So back in the 60s, it was the food stamp program. It's now known as SNAP. And families get um, a debit card to purchase food if they're within a certain income level. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I like to remind people is that, one, this is absolutely not a welfare program. This is a nutrition program, and even further, it's a food insurance program. We all pay taxes into a system so that these benefits are there should we fall in times of hardship, just like Social Security is. Nobody calls Social Security a welfare program. 
So the fact that we talk about SNAP not being an economic stimulus and not being a food insurance program is, is remiss. So when we, in 1966, when the Food Stamp Act was originally passed, it was passed as a result of the Great Depression, when there was a high demand for food and a very difficult way to provide it. The farmers were going, were going broke. There was too much food. People didn't have the funds to actually purchase the food. And, and it was not good for our economy. So we step, passed the Food Stamp Act to help stabilize that economy and help farmers out. In addition, put purchasing power back in the hands of people who needed food to survive. This created new economic benefits and new economic activity where stores could start to open, where the demand was, where people started being employed by these stores and moving off of these programs. This is a huge economic stimulus. And the fact that we're talking about putting a box in the hands of people who are right now purchasing from their local grocers, they're purchasing from their local mom and pop shops, and they're purchasing food that they're going to eat, food that is healthy for them if they're on any sort of medication. It's not going to be the high sodium, highly processed food that would come in the box like the pastas and and the sodium-packed canned vegetables and shelf-stable milk that has been proposed for this. You mentioned the retailers. I understand it's 260,000 retailers around the country that accept these debit cards through the SNAP program. So you're suggesting that if the harvest box is sent uh, once a month, that that would cut into um, these uh, grocers and other stores that provide um, this food. And could it also actually increase the food desert in certain parts of the country? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see how it could work any other way. You know, I think about our landscape in Connecticut, and you have small stores, whether it's rural, whether it's urban, because the big box stores, the super stores aren't far and widely available, and the transportation to get there isn't always in place. So you really have folks relying on their neighborhood stores, and the neighborhood stores, in turn, rely on their customer base. And so if you take this away, you're talking about not only harming the individuals, the families, the households, but you're talking about creating an economic destabilizer that's going to impact the ability for those small grocery stores to be able to provide food and continue to operate in business. And you're talking about putting then more people at risk of having to go into the safety net. Shannon Yearwood is executive director of End Hunger Connecticut. Again, today we're talking about uh, this proposal from the Trump administration that could cut uh, cash benefits for SNAP, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Aid program. Did I get that right? A supplemental Nutrition Assistance, Assistance program. program. SNAP. And uh, would be replaced by a monthly uh, shipment of food to low-income families across the country. Now, can we talk about the other side, Shannon? Because um, there are certain flaws to the SNAP program that have been um, talked about in, in several years, uh, including some of the um, individuals uh, are trafficking their cards, so they're selling their SNAP cards, so there is a question of fraud. Um, also, uh, people who uh, may um, misrepresent um, their household income to get these benefits. I mean, how can that be addressed? Sure. Actually, I'm really happy you asked that. Of all federal programs, SNAP has the lowest fraud rate of any program. It is less than one half of 1%. I, I don't know any program privately operated, publicly operated that has that little amount of fraud. It is a stringent income test with a lot of documentation that you have to provide in order to even be granted the benefits. There are many safeties in place to to disallow the type of fraud that you're talking about. What happens is that if there's one bad actor and it appeals to the media, that that person is really begins to represent 
a whole series of people that they're not actually representing. So we do know that there's bad actors. I'm not going to pretend that there's not. But for the most part, we're talking about people who are working oftentimes multiple jobs and and giving back to the economy and paying taxes into a system that they have every right to use when they are in that crisis to help them bounce out. People are not on SNAP for years. The average time that folks are using SNAP is eight to nine months. It helps you through that crisis period until you can get back on your feet. It is the number one federal program to show that it lifts people out of poverty and keeps them out of the safety net. Uh, Research shows that SNAP's highly effective anti-hunger program. When we look at Connecticut, I think the number again is 11% of Connecticut residents. Who are we talking about? Yeah, we are talking about folks who are working. We're talking about uh, 400,000 residents and 200,000 households. So we're talking about students who benefit from this, who are at their schools. There's a great there's a great um, mechanism that is built into SNAP that's also at risk, and it's called broad-based categorical eligibility. In our state, we chose this state option, which aligns our SNAP income threshold with free free meals at school meaning that any student who lives in a household with somebody receiving SNAP also gets meals at no cost to the school, which not only helps that family stretch their dollars and be able to get them into a different financial position, but it also helps our schools because our schools are able to bring in additional federal funds directly into those districts, and they're also able to eliminate any student debt for families who aren't able to pay the cost of those meals. So it's a great... All around, it's a great, great program. Uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLara has spoken out recently against uh, this, again, this proposal from the Trump administration for this America's Harvest Box. Uh, Do you think it has any legs in Washington? You know, I hope it doesn't. But from what we've seen in Washington, really, it's hard to say anything goes. But I would hope that this is something that doesn't pass. One of the things that we do have to keep in mind are the things they're doing, they're proposing ways to pay for it, like eliminating LIHEAP, and that's a really big problem. Shannon Yearwood, Executive Director of End Hunger Connecticut, thanks for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, Today's show uh, produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to WMPR intern Garnet McLaughlin. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Learn more about the show at WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As always, thanks for listening.